my third week in Vietnam, we were overrun at a place called Alpha North. The first thing I thought was, I'm in a place where it's people's job to kill me, and they're allowed to do that. And I can't say, time out, King's X, give me a second chance. I, along with the American public, had been misled, and this war was wrong. They gave me a medal for serving over there, and I said, here, take The decision was made that last day, we're going to form a national organization, Vietnam Veterans Against the guys really didn't do anything. They just wanted to demonstrate against the war. They didn't want to shoot anybody or blow up anything. Well, I think there was a mood at the time that some of the people that opposed the war were going to Canada or they were hippies that, you know, they were cowards or whatever. And the VBAW, these guys were over there and they got shot at and they, they shot back and they were combat veterans and they were gaining a lot of credibility. The Vietnam War expanded from 1955 to 1975 in which more than 50,000 Americans died. Although taught they were fighting communism upon returning to their homes, many felt differently. Some of these veterans across the country began protesting and formed the Vietnam Veterans Against War, or VVAW. Because of these veterans' unchallengeable credibility from serving their country, the American government took it upon itself to discredit this organization through intimidation and violence. From these attempts comes the trial of the Gainesville Eight. My name is John Paul Laurier, and welcome to this three-part podcast series on the Gainesville 8 brought to you by the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. Founded in 1967, the program has developed into one of the largest oral history archives in the nation with more than 6,000 interviews. We are dedicated to gathering, preserving, and promoting histories from all walks of life. One community, many voices. Today we are talking about the Gainesville 8. This is the story of how a group of veterans stood by their beliefs to protest a war that they had seen the violence and depravity of first-handedly, and upon gaining momentum, the government aimed to disrupt and antagonize them, eventually leading to their arrest on the charge of conspiracy to disrupt the 1972 Republican National Convention in Miami Beach, Florida. Plans written by the VVAW to attack local government buildings were discovered, and they were charged with planning to organize numerous fire teams to attack with automatic weapons, fire, and incendiary devices at police stations, police cars, and stores in Miami Beach. In order to understand the gravity of the battle these Vietnam veterans faced here in the States, it's important to understand the war that they had just left behind. Can you state your name for me, please? Scott Camille. Scott Camille is a veteran who, like most, did not know very much about Vietnam or the war before getting there right after high school. However, he believed in his country and that the government was fighting for honest and moral reasons. Back then, was Cold War was heavy time, um, and um, even in elementary school, we had duck and cover drills, um, like an air raid drill or a fire drill, and, and the duck and cover drills were because we constantly were under, lived under fear that the, the Russians were going to drop atomic bombs on us. So back then it was about communism. One day in class, um, the teacher said, um, this is, is in, in high school now, the duck and cover drills were in elementary school. Uh, in high school, the teacher said, um, if we could drop an atomic bomb on Saigon and end the war in Vietnam, who would be for it? And everybody raised their hand. And then the teacher said, well, you know, Saigon is the capital of our side. Why would we want to drop an atomic bomb on the capital of our side? This war in Vietnam is going to affect all of your lives. Many of you are going to go, and some of you are going to die there. It's important for you to pay attention and to understand what's going on. And that just went in one ear and out the other ear. 
Um, I, like when I was in high school, I wasn't thinking about politics and government. Um, I was thinking about what my parents are going to do if I don't make good grades. I was thinking about what parties are there on the weekend. I was thinking about who can I go out with and have some sex with. That's what teenage boys think about. Um, and so um, um, what he said didn't really um, – the importance of what he said didn't really hit me until um, after I was in Vietnam. I was taught that Vietnam was two countries um, and that um, southern Vietnam was our ally. Uh, and they were being attacked by the communists from the north who were trying to take over the world. And that um, it was our duty as their ally um, um, to go defend them, and it was our duty to get the commies over there before they came over here. So I was okay with all that. Um, that gave me an idea a little bit, um, but communism versus Americanism was, was something that was required, and it was all about the communists trying to take over the world. So. Um, I had no doubt that that it was that my parents, my teachers, um, my rabbi, my whole society all endorsed this. Um, I couldn't tell you what a communist was, but I knew it was okay to kill him. Scott didn't learn the truth behind the Vietnam War until after he had come home. But the problem was, like many other soldiers, he wasn't keen on looking too hard for answers. He was in the midst of battle where hesitation means life and death. And there isn't time to question morality or strategy. There is only survival. I think we all want to be a good person. And, 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 and everybody really would like to do what's right. Um, and um, when your government is telling you something that is right, um, and, and you're taught to um, believe uh, um, what your government says, to believe what adults say, to believe what authority says, and, and to not question them. It's easy for me to see um, how um, um, I was able to think it was okay to do what I was doing. Uh, and um, the, the real bottom line about all of it is that um, I'm a selfish person. I want to live. I really want to live. And if I have a choice between one of the two of us having to die, you're going to die. I want to live. Um, um, and and, and um, so that I'm really selfish about that. Uh, and in war, you want your friends to live too. So when you're in a war where you can't tell who the people are that like you and who the people are that don't like you, um, if you make a mistake about someone, they can kill you. If you give someone the benefit of the doubt, that can be the person who kills you. So my personal philosophy was, fuck them. And I really believed that the life of one American Marine was more valuable than all the Vietnamese in North and South Vietnam together. And um, so I don't know if you're good or bad. I'm just going to fucking kill you and then you can't hurt us. I ain't going to worry about it. I want to live. So that was my philosophy. In order to understand why these veterans would later be so willing to go to fight the police and their own government, you have to understand the daily hell they'd already been through and understand that they had done horrible things and sacrificed so much, all of which was based on a lie their government had told them. Scott joined his unit in Vietnam in March of 1966, 
He had just gotten out of high school and finished with training and was excited at the prospect of serving his country. As the new man, he was put on guard duty and was introduced to his first friend, Maine, who was also from Florida. Three weeks later, Scott had his first true taste of war. On the night of April 18, 1966, we were attacked and overrun. That was my first combat. First time I killed a person. First time I saw a person killed. First, my first real war experience. About um, 1.30 in the morning, I was awake on top of the post. And right out in front of me, all of a sudden, about over here, a trip flare went off. And a trip flare, flares planted in the ground with wires. And, and somebody hit the wire. This thing shot up in the air. Went, shoo, pop. The light went off. And all of these people stood up. They had guns. And they were inside the, the wire already. As soon as I saw them, I started shooting. So I was the first one to fire. My post was the only post that was not taken. The other three posts fell. I think the main reason that my post wasn't taken was because my post um, didn't guard anything significant. We had five men killed and 28 men wounded out of 90 of us. The next morning, the infantry came. Once the infantry came, we could leave our posts. And our first job was to it was several kind of things. Um, taking all of the wounded Americans up to the front uh, for medevacs, taking the dead Americans up to the front, making sure each of the Vietnamese that was laying on the ground was dead, putting a bullet in their head, taking their weapons, and taking any intelligence information they had and bringing that up front. So I was one of the people who went around and put a bullet in each person's head. Then I went to the front and I saw where the five dead Marines were, and they had ponchos covering their bodies. So I pulled the ponchos off to see who they were. One of them was my friend, Maine, my first friend. And I thought, this war stuff's not going to be as much fun as I expected. I realized that I was in a place where it was people's job to kill me. And they were allowed to do that. That was their job. And if I got killed, I couldn't say, time out, King's X, give me a second chance. I would really be dead. And I didn't want to be dead. Um, so I decided at that time that I was going to get them back for what they did to us, that I was going to be ruthless, that I would have no compassion. And I was also angered because I believed that we were going to, to Vietnam to protect the South Vietnamese who wanted to have a democracy from the North Vietnamese who were communists and who were trying to take them over. That raid on my camp was not the North Vietnamese. It was Viet Cong sappers. They were South Vietnamese. So it made me hate all Vietnamese because I thought, damn, my friend just got killed by the people who came to fucking help. So um, I became very hard and, uh, and um, I volunteered for every opportunity I could to um, lead patrols. Um, I wanted to go out in the field. I wanted to fight. Um, I wanted to get them back. Scott only represents one of thousands of soldiers. However, his willingness to tell his story and his involvement throughout the history of the war and protesting of it makes his story all the more profound. Scott was injured twice while in Vietnam. However, he continuously calls himself lucky, especially after everything he's seen. I, I think it was September 
1966. I was wounded for the first time. Um, and it was an operation in the mudflats. It was called Operation Stone. We killed um, either 272 or 292 um, people. Uh, many of them were women and children. Um, but I didn't really care. Um, in my training, I had learned that the communist women were just communist baby factories, and they would produce children that would fight our children, and that their children were just baby commies that would grow up to kill our children when they grew up. And so just like when you're wiping out cockroaches, when you're trying to wipe out communism, you have to get them all. So I believed that, and I believed that was okay. I have a little bit of a problem with that uh, in the sense that I'm Jewish. I learned lessons from my grandmother, especially about our relatives that died in the concentration camps. I didn't really understand how soldiers could do that. Mm -hmm. And then I became a Marine and I did that. And when you're a little kid, and you watch World War II movies on television growing up, um, we're the good guys. Uh, and soldiers kill soldiers. And, and, and American soldiers protect the civilians. And they hand out chocolate bars to the little kids. Uh, and um, um, for me, I didn't understand how the German soldiers killed women and children. It didn't make any sense to me. And now, here I was doing the same fucking thing. So we were sent out on a patrol. We were on the island, and the island was a really bad place. It was a really bad place, and we always took lots of casualties there. Um, the lieutenant um, didn't want to go on the patrol because it was a heavily mined area. But the captain ordered us to go on this patrol, so we went on this patrol. There was 19 of us. And the general rule is um, that there's 20 meters between each person, a minimum of 20 meters. So when you step on something and blow up, it only kills one person at a time. When I think about it now, um, the amount of pressure, um, knowing that each step you take could be your last step, and seeing people step on things and blow up, but you still have to cross that field. And we did it each time. I don't know many people that would do that. Let's just say from this building right now where your car is parked, if somebody stepped on a mine trying to get to the parking lot every day, would you be willing to use that parking lot? So every day we walked the ground and some people blew up and some people didn't. And that's about how 80% of our casualties happened. Out of the 19, 12 died. One of them, uh, a friend of mine named Dickerson. He was a, from New Jersey, a skinny black kid, a really nice kid who, who I just bonded with. And um, um, so it hurt me for him to be dead. And um, so we had 12 killed, and everyone else was wounded by three of us. Scott received two Purple Hearts for his service in the Vietnam War. After his second, he left Vietnam and traveled the world, attending various schools until he found himself back in the States. I went to bunches of schools and um, riot control school, and I became the riot control MCOIC, so that's non-commissioned officer in charge, for the 10th Marine Regiment. And at the time, there were lots of demonstrations going on in Washington. So for me, a Marine, like now I'm home from war, um, 
I have two years to make up for. So on the weekends, I'm going home and getting laid. So now on weekends, we couldn't go home. We were on standby to go to Washington. So it made me hate the anti-war people. And I didn't really know anything about them, but I hated them. And I had read um, an article in the Sea Tiger, which was a, um, a newspaper put out by the Navy. And the Marine Corps is a part of the Navy. So it was an article about Joan Baez and her um, communist sympathizing friends having a concert in San Francisco. And they were collecting blood, and then that blood was going to um, Canada and then being shipped to Vietnam um, for the Vietnamese. And when I read the article, I thought, damn, I could get killed by some fucking comedy with American blood. It made me very angry. So I hated the anti-war people. In riot control, you're taught that you're not the jury, you're not the judge, you're not the executioner. Your job is to protect lives. That's your job, protect lives. If you have to shoot, you're supposed to shoot to wound. So I didn't agree with that. Uh, why shoot to wound? I'm going to shoot to kill. If, if I feel I have to shoot you, why would I wound you? I want you to be done. And um, so we were on standby to go to Washington, and I gave an instruction that if anybody threw a rock, a bottle, or anything at us, I wanted everybody to empty one magazine into the crowd. So a magazine is 20 rounds. Uh, having 200 guys firing 20 rounds into a crowd um, would have been sort of like Kent State, but a lot worse. Um, my commanding officer found out about it, and I was relieved of that duty. Scott is obviously not the same man today as he was when he was fresh from war. And soon after the incident, he began to expand his point of view on Vietnam, the government, and life as a whole. He left the Marine Corps and began to attend school at the University of Florida. One of the first books I was assigned to read was a book called A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. So I read the part on Vietnam, and I made an appointment to see the professor. I'd never made an appointment to see a professor before, um, and it was because I was upset with what the book was saying, um, not because I really cared about anything. Um, and, but they think that when you make an appointment, it's because you're really interested. So um, I told the teacher that I was, he was a professor, and I told him that I was a Vietnam vet, that I read the part about Vietnam, and it was wrong. And he smiled at me, and he gave me other stuff to read. So I read this other stuff. These readings represent the first steps Scott took to understanding the truth behind Vietnam. Whereas before his feelings were solely based on what he'd been told and the violence he faced, here he was now studying the history and facts of the country he had just recently left behind. One of the most important readings that he mentions is Howard Zinn's book. Howard Zinn was a World War II combat veteran who became involved with civil rights and anti-war movements. When I read Howard Zinn's book, I saw that um, Ho Chi Minh had really been our ally in World War II. Uh, and um, the OSS parachuted a guy named Archimedes Patty um, into Vietnam, who met with Ho Chi Minh, helped train him and his um, Viet Minh guerrillas to fight against the Japanese. Uh, and we told them that when the war was over, they could have independence and self-determination, but because before that, they were a colony of France's, and they were fighting for the French, and then the Japanese came in and 
kicked out the French and then they were fighting the Japanese. Um, and then um, um, after World War II, the Japanese were knocked out and then we put the French back in and the French couldn't afford to do it. So we paid for the French Indochina War. Then the French were defeated at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954 and a treaty was signed called the Geneva Accords. The treaty was signed by the French and the Vietnamese. The United States almost immediately started violating the treaty. And the United States said it wasn't violating the treaty because it didn't sign the treaty. Um, but the treaty said no foreign troops, no foreign weapons, no advisors. Um, the 17th parallel was going to be a, a, a demarcation line for disengaging troops, that it would not be considered a national or an international boundary, that there'd be free elections in the whole country, uniting the country under one government. Those free elections didn't take place in the southern half. They only took place in the northern half. And Eisenhower said if we would have allowed this free elections to take place in the southern half, Ho Chi Minh would have won. And we couldn't allow a precedent to be set where um, people in a communist country would democratically elect a communist leader. Um, and what we did in, politically was we compared communism to freedom and democracy where communism is an economic system and we should have been comparing communism to capitalism because you can have a communist economic system and elect your leaders and have democracy. But we were painted a different picture growing up. So when I saw the real history and I thought, wow, you know, those Vietnamese, they were just defending their homes. You know, what would I do if foreign, foreign troops came to my house doing to us what we did to the Vietnamese? Well, I'd be a Viet Cong. I'd be out there fighting them. You know, they didn't do anything to us. What the hell were we doing over there? And I, I, um, I saw the history and I saw that the government had lied. And, and, and I felt that if all of my friends who died in Vietnam had known the truth ahead of time, we might not have gone. Because we weren't really fighting for the things we believed we were fighting for. I felt like I had been tricked and used. And I felt that my friends had been tricked and used. And it made me very bitter towards my country. But I didn't really do anything with that. Because how am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to, you know, I have my basic life to take care of. And that comes first now. So I'm seeing little things along the way that are changing who I am. Um, um, and like the stories on the, in the newspaper and on TV, they're not telling the truth. So I'm thinking, well, if what we're doing is right, why are we ashamed to tell people what we're doing? So just things like that would go in my mind. I would just think about them, and I didn't do anything about them. And then um, Jane Fonda came to speak at the University of Florida. And I wanted to see what Barbarella looked like. Um, and that was the only reason I went. I wanted to see a movie star. Um, and so I went. It was at Grand Pond. Um, I was smoking a joint. We were playing Frisbee. People were having a good time. And I wasn't really paying attention to her. She was way down there. And I was way up here in this hill. I couldn't really see her close up. Um, and um, then all of a sudden, her words, some of her words, got into my head. She said that the government was lying about Vietnam and that um, in a democracy, in order for a democracy to properly function, the public had to have access to the truth and that it was the duty 
of patriotic Vietnam veterans to tell the American truth, the American people the truth about what was being done in their name with their money. So when she said um, it was the duty of patriotic Vietnam veterans, that grabbed my attention because I'm a patriotic um, um, Vietnam veteran. Uh, I understand duty. I agree that in a democracy that the, the people are the highest authority. And in order for us to manage our employees, which happen to be the Congress and the President and the Supreme Court, we have to know what the hell they're doing. Um, and when they hide that information from us, we can't do our job. So it makes sense to me. Um, I knew from um, watching the news that the government wasn't, what they were saying about Vietnam wasn't what I did for the 20 months I was there. So I agreed to come forward and I ended up at the Winter Soldier investigation. The Winter Soldier investigations would be where Scott Camille spoke out about what he actually did in Vietnam for the first time, and where he'd meet some of the other people who'd later form the Vietnam Veterans Against War. Come back next week to hear how this anti-war group would soon be indicted on terrorist-like charges by the United States government. You're listening to the Samuel Proctor Oral History Programs podcast. I'm John Paul Laurier, and thank you for joining us.